As we get to chapter 21 of the Gospel of Matthew, we are kind of pivoting towards the end. In regards to the timeline of affairs, we are, beginning with verse 1, approaching what is traditionally known as the week of passion. Jesus' week of passion. The Passion Week begins with what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. We will look at that. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus has left the northern region of Galilee. He's made his way south down the Jordan River Valley. He's now crossed up. We saw at the end of the previous chapter him working through Jericho. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 21 begins this final week. Again, starting with Palm Sunday. A lot of events, a lot of things will happen. Several chapters are dedicated to documenting the events of this week. Things undoubtedly reach a low point when Jesus is arrested and tried and slandered and crucified. But things will then reach a high note when Jesus is resurrected on the third day. So this week begins on a Sunday, and it will conclude on a Sunday. Jesus' week of passion. As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, let me set a bit of the scene just to give you a little context. This is Passover, which is one of the three main feasts that Jewish men were required to go, if possible, and attend. They were required to go to Jerusalem. You would have the Day of Atonement associated with Passover. This was the main sacrifice, the main opportunity to atone for sin, to go worship, worship God. As a result... Uh, people from all over the area, all over the region, all over the nation would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So this is not just Jesus and his entourage. There are multitudes upon multitudes of people from Galilee, from Judea, making their way to Jerusalem. In fact, estimates, Josephus, an early first century historian, places the, the swelling population of this very small city, Jerusalem, being in upwards of 3 million people. I mean, we've got people on top of people on top of people. Now, the Jews were a subjugated people. They were an oppressed people. They were a dominated people. They were in captivity. The Romans ruled with an iron fist. And thus, such a swelling of people would garner the ire, the attention, the concern of Rome. As such, in Jerusalem during this week, you would have the Roman governor of the whole region there present. So in addition to the, the multitudes of these Hebrew people coming to worship God and to offer sacrifices, you would have a very heavy uh, Roman presence to keep the peace, to keep any type of revolts from spiraling out of control. Couple that, you'd also have a local ruler named Herod. King Herod would be present. You had the who's who there in Jerusalem. You had the multitudes, you had the Romans, you had the power brokers, you had the Sanhedrin, all there in this little city. It is a powder keg of sorts. So you have the population, you have the rulers, and then you have Jesus coming into the middle of this mix. And we read, verse 1 of chapter 21, that when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Now pause for a moment. Again, a little geography. Coming from the Jordan River Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, working your way up, traveling east to west through the Judean wilderness, you would get to Jericho. Jesus would go through Jericho. We saw that last Sunday. On the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, you would have two what you would call in a kind of today's vernacular suburbs. You would have Bethpage and another town called Bethany. Basically, city, sister cities. In fact, we already know a few characters that lived in these towns. Mary, Martha, Lazarus lived in these towns. Jesus will stay in the suburbs. Not everyone could fit in the city. People would go into the city and then they would find lodging outside of the city. So Bethany, Bethpage on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Now from these little towns... You would go up about a two-mile hike. You would go up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then from that vantage point, you would see Jerusalem. In fact, if you Google a picture of Jerusalem, 99% uh, of the photos that you get, the panorama kind of viewpoint, 
is from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives. So when you see the Temple Mount, you see the Dome of the Rock, you see that picturesque view of Jerusalem, that is from, those pictures are taken from the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. So you're on top of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus would go from Bethany, Bethpage, he would go up to the top of the mountain, he would see Jerusalem, and then you would go down the western slope, you would go through a garden area known as Gethsemane. They're at the base of the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives being coined for the olive trees that existed. At the base, there was a grove of olive trees, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. You would then cross the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. Again, you're traveling west to east. From the top of the Mount of Olives, you would look directly into the temple through the eastern gate. But then again, you go down the Kidron, you go back up into the city. Kidron um, is basically, a, it's, it's a shortened valley that was used and utilized to drain the blood from the temple out of the city. Kidron meaning black. It was stained black. The blood of the sacrifices would come out, would be washed through aqueducts out of the city, would flow down the Kidron um, south. So a little geography, Jesus here, he's getting close to Jerusalem, Matthew tells us. He's gone through Bethpage. He's making his way. So he gets to the Mount of Olives, he stops. Now the crowds are still continuing, the crowds are still going, but Jesus pauses and he turns to two of his disciples. And he says to them, verse 2, he says, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now there's a little bit of debate in regards to the mechanisms of this. Uh, was this something that was kind of a supernatural development? Is Jesus ganking two donkeys from someone? Hey, you're going to go across the town. You're going to find two donkeys, a mother donkey, a colt, which is a baby donkey. Just take them. And if someone's like, yo, you're still in my donkeys, be like, the Lord has need. And somehow like some supernatural thing happens and they're like, oh, it's the Lord. Take our donkeys. It seems as though, and again, when you kind of place this within the other narratives, the other accounts of, this, of the same story, that this is probably prearranged, that there was a prearrangement. Some scholars even believe that this could have been the family that even had uh, ownership of the upper room in which they would stay. Again, where did they get the upper room when they celebrated Passover? Well, there was a prearrangement. It was someone's upper room. History says that it was the, the family of a young man that would be known as John Mark, or the gospel author of, of Mark. A guy, a young man, uh, we're told that was there when Jesus was arrested in the garden, goes to run away. They grab onto his cloak, and he runs away naked. People think that that was Mark, the gospel author. So there's some arrangement, there's some, uh, you know, Jesus has this orchestrated. He's like, hey, it's been set up, go to the town, there'll be a mother donkey, there'll be a colt, a baby donkey, bring them, I have need of them. Jesus has a plan here. So he stops, he sends the disciples on an errand, and we're told, and Matthew does this all the time, again, this is not a, a new thing, uh, Matthew being a Levite, Levi was his original name, being a Levite, Probably growing, growing up, uh, studying God's word, growing up in the priestly class, knowing the scriptures, uh, presenting Jesus as the king, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew, even up into this point, will take moments in time where he'll take something that Jesus does, and then he'll be like, hey, this happened, by the way, so that it might be fulfilled, which was said in the scriptures, and he'll quote the Old Testament. Matthew does this all the time. We will see this happen a lot in this chapter and throughout the remainder of his gospel. Jesus will do something, and, and he'll say, and this is all retrospect writing with the benefit of hindsight. He said, Jesus did this, by the way, so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet said, and this is a great example. Continuing, Matthew says, all this was done, so to give you some context, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey, and he quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So the disciples, Matthew says, went, and they did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them, and set Jesus on them. So Jesus is going to ride this colt into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday. 
Interesting, Jesus rides the colt. Again, prophesied. Why both donkeys? Why the mother and the colt? Well, we're told in another, another place that the colt, no one had ever ridden on the colt. It's likely that the mother is brought along with the baby to keep the baby calm. Again, no one ever riding on the donkey would bring the mother along. We're not exactly sure why. That's pure speculation. We have both, but, but they, they did. So you have Jesus here on this colt, on this donkey, and he's going to make his way now from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Now I should pause for a moment. Again, there's a lot of fanfare that's very natural to what's happening apart from Jesus. In fact, there's whole sections of the Psalms. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. Where when the people were making their way, ascending up to Jerusalem, they would be singing and celebrating. This was festive. It was religious. But there was a, a celebratory angle to all of this. There was a bit of nationalism connected to it. They're celebrating God. They're celebrating God's blessing on Israel. There's a bit of pleading for God's deliverance. There's, there is a natural enthusiasm to what's taking place. In fact, I, let me read you for a moment. History tells us that while the people are singing and making their way up to Jerusalem, the priests who are in charge with kind of the whole, the whole setup here, the whole procedures. It's the priestly class that will take the, the sacrifices. They have a lot, a lot to do, a lot of responsibilities this week. But in Psalms, chapter 24, I'll read it for you. What you would have is you would have some of the priests on top of the wall crying out and kind of a relay. They'd be reading the psalm, singing it. We don't know what the music is. But you would have some of the priests up on the wall singing part of it, and then there would be a relay of the priests that were down in the courtyards that would also be singing this, and then the priests that were about their task and working, they would be singing this. They would be singing here on the first day. They would be singing this psalm. Now, again, you got to get the anticipation, get the full feel of what Jesus is about to walk into. This is what they're singing. I'll read it for you. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek his face, say la. And then listen to this. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your hands, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So imagine, this is the song that the priests are singing. As Jesus orchestrating uh, this procession, being on this donkey, he's now, he is now proceeding into the city. Prophesied he'd come through the east. They're singing, and Jesus here, he's sitting on the donkey, and we're told, verse 8, back to Matthew 21, that a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed, so those going before and those who are coming after Jesus, they're all crying out. And they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, Psalm 118. Peace, Hosanna. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Again, what an amazing scene. We call this the triumphal entry. There's a bit of a contrast to what's happening here and the way that the Romans would have orchestrated such a procession. 
Again, Jesus is riding on a donkey. In Roman class, again, such processions weren't abnormal. In fact, when a king would go out and would lead the troops into battle and would gain a great victory, a similar type of scene would commence as the the leader would come back into the city, but he would be riding on a white stallion. Again, there's this contrast. Jesus, as the king, he's entering Jerusalem, but he's not on a stallion. That'll come. But in this first advent, Jesus is, is coming on a donkey. There's a meekness, a mildness, a lowliness, a humility, a simplicity. Now the crowd is enthused. The crowd is excited. In addition to creating a basic makeshift saddle, taking their cloaks for Jesus, the people going ahead start taking off their cloaks and, and they're making, they're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak, for Jesus. And if you didn't want to part with your cloak, people were cutting down palm branches, laying them down and waving them in the air, which had all kinds of significance and would set a lot of power brokers in a bit of an alarm. You see, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a period we would call the Maccabees, actual history of of the Israelites, the children of Israel. And in fact, there was a rebellion, a revolt that took place within these 400 years known as the Maccabean Revolution, where Judas Maccabeus, who was a priest and a group of priests, led a revolt that was successful for a period of time. And the symbol of their revolution ended up being the palm branch. And so the the idea here of Jesus approaching and then people organically, nothing of has been planned. It's not as though leaflets went out. This is what's going to happen. This is an organic expression. They're laying down their clothes. Jesus is coming in and they're waving palm branches. They're anticipating revolution. People have been talking about this. The disciples have been anticipating this. The expectation is that Jesus is coming here for Passover, yes, but he's coming to spark some type of revolution. This does place the Romans on edge. It places the Sanhedrin, the religious class, on edge. The crowd. And what are they singing out? I mean, there's no doubt as to the pervasive identity, the belief of Jesus' identity. They're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. They're calling Jesus their king. And, And Hosanna meaning save now. This appeal to save us, this expectation, what a scene. There's a contrast not included here in Matthew's gospel that's presented for us in other places that I believe Luke's account. That as all of this fanfare is occurring, Jesus making his way into the city, riding on this colt. People crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, waving their palm branches, that Jesus is weeping. What a contrast. There's this celebration, but Jesus is weeping. And we're told he's weeping because they don't get it. Jesus not only understanding what this week would hold, but understanding that he would be rejected by the Jewish people. And seeing Jerusalem, he would weep over the city, seeing its coming destruction would happen about 40 years after this. So you have Jesus on a donkey weeping, and you have the crowd celebrating, and you have the, relig- the religious people worried, and the Romans on edge. I mean, this is quite a thing. Something else happening that, again, without a bit of historical context, you might miss. Jesus picks a donkey. <laughs> I mean, of all of, the, of all of the animals, even if you're like, well, you know, I'm going to ride a white stallion later. I don't want to do that now. It'd be redundant. But why a donkey? I mean, you are God, too. I mean, you could pick anything. What about an elephant? Like, go ahead, donkey. Ride an elephant or a zebra. Like, you could pick anything. You're God, you know. You're supernaturally, but a donkey. Don't forget This is Sunday of a particular week leading up to Passover. And on Sunday, some significant things were happening. Sunday. 
In fact, on Sunday, the Sunday before Passover, was the traditional customary day by which the multitudes coming to Jerusalem for Passover would come presenting what? An an acceptable sacrifice. And they were required, if they had the money, to present a lamb. An unblemished, spotless lamb. That was the requirement. And on Sunday, it was the day that the multitudes making their way to Jerusalem are coming to Jerusalem with a specific intention. What is that intention? To present an acceptable sacrifice. And so not only do you have the crowds making their way into Jerusalem, and you have Jesus on a donkey. Now, in your mind's eye, the way that you play that scene out is that it's, it's really kind of unique that Jesus is on a donkey. And yes, it's unique that someone would be riding a donkey. People don't ride donkeys in that, in that, that kind of a context. But understand the presence of a donkey is not abnormal at all. In fact, as you play the scene out in your mind, not only is Jesus on a donkey, there are donkeys everywhere. Why? Well, again, let's say you're part of a small community there in Galilee. And you are going to be making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It is a journey. You know, you've got a Maybe the first, third, it's, it's smooth sailing. But, I mean, you've got wilderness to transverse, to get to Jerusalem. And you're bringing a sacrifice. In fact, of your litter, you have already identified the sacrifice for the year. You've set that sacrifice aside. You've taken care of your ewe lamb. You've named him Chepetto or whatever. And you've taken care of your lamb. The lamb doesn't run around with the rest of the lambs. It's a pet. It lives in your home. You take care of it. Why? You have to keep it spotless. That's the plan. And you're now going to take this journey, a tough journey to Jerusalem, to present your lamb as an acceptable sacrifice. It will be inspected. In fact, if any blemish is found, as we'll see, you have problems. Because it doesn't work, but guess what? We have a lamb for you. Already pre-approved and stamped just happens to be five times the amount of money it costs your lamb. So you have a dynamic here. You're coming from Galilee. You're bringing a lamb. How do you keep that lamb safe? How do you keep it spotless? How do you keep it clean? How do you you take care of it? Well, it was a normal procedure that you would, again, your community, you would take a donkey. And they would actually tailor this satchel that would go over a donkey. And within this satchel, going down each side of the donkey would be uh, openings, sacks, that you could put your little lamb. So that the donkey would be carrying lambs on the way for sacrifice. In fact, if you think I'm crazy, right now, you all have your phones. Google donkeys carrying lambs. Your page will immediately be filled with images. I could have printed one out or put one on the screen. But you get your phones. You can engage. So, again, in your mind, what's happening? You have multitudes making their way to Jerusalem to do what? To present their lamb as an acceptable sacrifice. They don't want their lambs getting messed up, so the lambs are literally riding in the sacks being carried by donkeys. So you have thousands of donkeys carrying lambs to the temple for sacrifice, for atonement. There's just one abnormal one. Carrying Jesus. You know, when Jesus first appeared, the very beginning of his earthly ministry. Very beginning. I see some of you have your phones out. You're like, oh, he's telling the truth. Yes, I told you. When Jesus begins his ministry, John is baptizing there at the Jordan. And Jesus is approaching. And John was the forerunner. He was setting the stage. John introduces Jesus. You know how he's introduced publicly? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, everybody has their lamb that they're bringing to make atonement for their sin. The problem with the structure is that it was a temporary atonement. It was 
an image. It was a picture of something. It fell short in so many ways. Everybody was bringing their sacrifice, an inadequate one. And yet you had Jesus on a donkey. Not as the lamb of man. Jesus is not our lamb. He is not the lamb that we offer as a sacrifice. Instead, he is God's lamb. He is the lamb of God. The lamb that God was ushering and bringing into Jerusalem to make atonement for the sins of the world. Behold the lamb of God. So it's not just this accident that Jesus is on a donkey. He is on a donkey in the same way all the other sacrifices are riding on donkeys, not as our sacrifice to earn God's favor, but God's sacrifice to give us his. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is making his way into the city. What a scene. Again, he's weeping. Why? He knows. He knows what's coming. He knows what will be required. He knows he'll be rejected. And there'll be judgment as a result, but he knows. And there's this fanfare, there's this anticipation, there's this excitement. Jesus is coming in as the Lamb of God. And what will happen over the next few days, we'll see it several chapters worth, gives us some context for what comes next in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, as all of the other lambs, will be what? Inspected. The religious leaders will will question him and interrogate him. He will be questioned. Why? Because he will need to be proven to be spotless, to be holy, to be an acceptable offering. Now before we continue on here, two things, again, within its context, this phrase in verse 10, all the city was moved. The idea behind this phrase in the Greek is that there was a seismos. It was seismic. It was like an earthquake. Everybody knew what was happening. Everybody saw it. Everybody was aware of it. It was a moment, a significant moment. In fact, it's really a unique moment, kind of, kind of odd. Well, how so, Pastor? Well, as we've been looking at Jesus' ministry, one of the things that you, that you find just kind of over and over and over again, I mean, Jesus did amazing things, right? And Jesus had incredible multitudes that followed him, undoubtedly. But, but over and over and over again, you, you find that Jesus is constantly what? Trying to downplay everything. Like he heals the leper. He's like, hey, you need to go present yourself to the temple. There's a procedure here, according to Leviticus. But don't tell anyone. Over and over and over again, Jesus will do something. He's like, hey, just, you know, keep it between us. Now, so often people didn't listen to him, right? But Jesus is constantly, throughout his ministry, trying to kind of like temper down the fanfare. Now, why? Well, he knows the inclination of the people, and he's on a timeline. There's a plan that's unfolding. There's even moments where, where like, they want to take him, like the feeding of the 5,000. They want to take him by force and make him king right then and there. And what does Jesus have to do? He tells the 12, get in the boat and go. I'm going to deal with this. And he deals with it. No idea how. Right? He knows the ideas of of the crowd, the population, how things are going. And he's like, this is not the time. And he's tempering expectations. But this is what makes chapter 21 just, whoa. Because Jesus, he doesn't skirt it. He doesn't temper it. He embraces it, doesn't he? Like this is a day that he's fine with everyone knowing he's there. And with what's happening resonating. And this being like an earthquake blast throughout the city. He, w- he wants the attention. He's riding a donkey. In fact, there's another account that tells us that the religious leaders like, end up coming to Jesus in the middle of this procession. They're like, you need to tell people to chill out. This is going to get us in trouble. You need to, to lower the temperature gauge. And what does Jesus say? He says, absolutely not. In fact, This is my day. You should know what's happening. 
If I were to tell them to be quiet, what's happening is so important in God's time, the rocks themselves would start to cry out. What's happening today cannot be stopped. What is he talking about? Well, again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you go back to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel, this incredible 490 years God's going to deal with the children of Israel. This timeline is going to begin with a command by Xerxes to rebuild the city. And from that point, 483 years using a Babylonian calendar, 170, 173,880 days, I believe it is. You can fact check, fact check me on that. 438 times 360. Pinpoints a day where Daniel says the Messiah, the king, will present himself to Jerusalem. There's been a lot of scholarly research that's been done on this, but it places to that day, this triumphal entry, in the exact timeline presented by Daniel as April 6, 32 A.D. So Jesus is like, this is my day. It can't be stopped. You want to tell people to shut up, the rocks will cry out. And you should know it if you knew your Old Testament. If you knew what Daniel was writing about, if you knew the prophecies, you would have been looking. And none of this is an accident. You should be aware. Bigger things are at play. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to save humanity from their sins. One other thought before we progress. I'm going to play with a little words here. Something that the Lord <laughs> kind of spoke to me. I, I, I love the fact, i got to be very careful how I say this. <clears throat> so, the old King James Version of this passage translates donkey as ass. And Jesus is like, I have need of a jackass, of a donkey. And that resonates with me. <laughs> See if I can say it without saying it so I'm not in trouble, but you know what I'm saying. I take great encouragement to know that Jesus can have need of even a donkey. Because so often... I mean, if I picked an animal in the kingdom, I probably most resembled, it would probably be a jackass. Not, not in looks, per se. No amens. But in personality, a donkey, think about it. A donkey's not an easy animal, is it? There's a reason you don't ride them. They're stubborn. They're stubborn, and they're prideful. They're resistant, especially to even a master, aren't they? They want to do their own thing. They're a donkey. Stubborn. Huh. I'm glad that Jesus can use a donkey. I'm glad that Jesus can call I have need of an ass. It's like my life verse. But seriously, seriously. But, but what has to happen? They put Jesus on top of it. See, a donkey's only useful in this world. When it's under the submission of Jesus. It's the only way a donkey, someone with that personality, can be useful to the Lord. Is they have to be in constant submission to Jesus. I take encouragement. Jesus is like, I'm going into, I have need of a donkey. And that donkey submitted. My wife warned me, be very careful. <laughs> Verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. Pause. Now, if you go to Mark, 
and this is, uh, you know, I've debated a little bit on how I'm going to approach this. You can do a chronological study of the week of Passion. We're not going to do that. I'll do my best to point out certain things, but you have to kind of take a chronology. Keep in mind, Matthew's not writing chron chronologically. He's, he's writing, there's a chronology to it, but he's writing to present Jesus as the king. He, he's thematic. And where the chronology can work in a broad sense, that's cool. But when it doesn't, he's going to stick with theme, okay? Mark's a little bit more like in, in, the, in the process. Chr chronologically, Jesus leaves the Mount of Olives, goes across the Kidron riding a donkey, enters Jerusalem. He actually enters the temple, and we're told at the end of, of Mark's account, he gets there, and he looks around, he checks the place out, and then he leaves. And he goes back to Bethany, stays the night, and then he comes in the morning back, and then we get this account. So Matthew begins presenting things not purely chronological. You can find that elsewhere. He's presenting things in a theme. So yes, in chronology, Jesus goes into the temple of God here on Sunday, but he leaves. He doesn't do anything. He just checks out the place. Now, in the morning, he goes back into the temple, and we're told he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Quotes two passages of the Old Testament, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So Jesus evaluates the scene, which is important to me. Because Jesus is not reactionary at all here. Is he angry? Oh, you better believe it. I mean, he's ticked off. But he's not reactionary. It's not as though Jesus walks in, sees what's happening, and just flies off the handle. No, 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 no. He sees what's going on. He leaves. He sleeps on it. Important. You know how many terrible emails you could have avoided if you just slept on it? <laughs> this happens, and I'm shooting one off. Oh, what did I just do? <laughs> And then you go back the next morning, you read it, you're like, that was, that was not smart. I wish I hadn't slept on it. So Jesus comes back in, and, and he's already evaluated it, and he already has a plan of attack. And he goes in, and Jesus, you know, we were told, be angry and don't sin. But that doesn't mean be angry and don't act. Because Jesus acts, doesn't he? He's angry. There's a righteous anger. He sees what's happening. And he's like, this is unacceptable. Now what's happening? Now I already told you that you would bring a lamb. If you didn't bring a lamb, if you're too poor, you, you could bring a dove. That was permissible for the poor. But m a lot of the times you would get there. And, and again, the temple was a small structure, but then there were these courtyards that were included. In fact, the, the, the furthest courtyard was the courtyard for the Gentiles. Again, the law gave uh, conditions where if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come and worship God, you could. There was a place for you. And then from the, the, the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, there was then the courtyard for the women, and then there was the courtyard for the men, then there was the courtyards for the priests, and only the high priest could go further in. There was this hierarchy this way, but it was accessible to anyone and everyone. Now, the outer courtyard of the Gentiles... This very big space. Again, the Temple Mount, about 17 acres, give or take. Now, in the outer courtyard, so you're coming, you're bringing your little lamb to make a sacrifice for your sin, as God had asked. And you would get there, and you would, you would wait in line, and you would get up to the priestly table, and you would get up, and you would present your little lamb. And they'd, they'd look at your, they would inspect, and they, oh, there's a blemish. You're like, where's the blemish? Oh, it's right there, I see it. Oh, we just traveled all this way. We don't have a sacrifice. It's okay. See the table next door? They're already pre-approved. And you're like, well, I got to do something. And so you get out of the line. You get into the next line. And you go all the way up. And you're like, I'm here to, to purchase one of the pre-approved spotless lambs. And they're like, that's great. $19.99. Free shipping. And you're like, okay. So you start counting on your money. And they're like, oh, wait, wait. 
that's no good here. You see, anything that has the image of Caesar on it is idolatry. So we won't accept your currency. And so you're going to have to exchange your Roman currency for a specific temple shekel. Now, you want to take a guess what they did with the temple shekel? You think the exchange rate was fair? So not only are you having to buy a more expensive lamb for it to be approved, but now you got to then exchange your money into a temple coinage where you're getting gouged. I mean, think of the whole process here. I mean, these guys, in a modern context, are running a waste management company. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this is, organized, this is an organized crime family. Literally, it's an organized crime family. Ananias and Caiaphas, the whole, the whole thing. But they're gouging the people. And not only are they doing it with the lambs, but with the doves. They're sticking it to the poor people, too. They don't have anything. And Jesus sees this charade. And where is it happening? It's happening in the outer court where it's the only place the Gentiles can go worship God. And where do they get it? They're here and this is the racket. And then across the court, I'm sure they had like the merchandise tables. Get your temple t-shirts and your stickers for the ride back. That's why we don't charge for t-shirts. I don't want Jesus coming in flipping over the information center. By the way, if you'd like a free t-shirt, grab one. But there's this whole racket happening. This whole thing. The money changers. Jesus, he comes in. He's angered. He's righteous. And then there's action to his anger. Because he forcibly, physically, starts flipping over. Imagine the scene. Now, only Jesus can do this because he's got the, the, the multitudes are like, about time, someone's doing something. This is Jesus, Hosanna the king, remember yesterday? And no one's going to stop him because he's got the power behind him. And he's flipping over and he's driving people out. He's like, get out of here. And he's declaring why he's doing this. Again, look back at it. He said, verse 13, it is written, my house, so he's referring it to his house, shall not... It shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. This is my house. As a result, I have the authority to dictate what is happening and isn't in my house. And this is not permissible, and I'm driving it out. I'm getting rid of it. And there is this continued excitement about it, isn't there? Power to the people. Finally, someone's standing up for righteousness. Someone's doing something about the charade. People are cheering him on. My house should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You know, related. Jesus is angry. He doesn't react. He acts. There's action to his anger. That's Jesus. <laughs> Are there things that we should be angry about? Is it okay to be angry? Sure. Anger is an emotion. God made us emotional creatures. There are things that should anger you. And should you act on such anger? You know what? There are situations that you should be able to act on such anger if you don't sin. Well, how do I make sure that, that you know, I act righteously and I don't sin? I think a good rule of thumb. If you're angry about something concerning God and how that is affecting others. Jesus is not upset about how this affects him. But he's upset about how it's affecting others and how it's misrepresenting God. And as a result, he has to act. And he chooses to act. And it's violent, isn't it? Little meek and mild Jesus. He takes his Fabio hair back into a Chad Mosley ponytail and starts drop-kicking fools. You know, Jesus, you know, I hate the way that, that, that the, you know, modern Christianity has just straight up, there's no easier way to say it, just neutered Jesus. Just neutered him, gutted him. It's like when people think about Jesus, it's like that Jesus was a weenie, that he was a weak man, that he was a passive man. 
that he was a small man. That's how we think about Jesus often. Which is why we get together and we sing love songs to him. Keep in mind, for 30 years before any of this, what was Jesus? A carpenter. He wasn't a scholar. He wasn't an academic. The man worked with his hands. Which means that when you think about Jesus, yes, he's not, he's not white. Shocker. Uh, he's Middle Eastern, Jewish. Kind of probably got a big nose. Tan. Dark hair, not blonde. But he had forearms, man. I mean, in that day, if you were a carpenter, it wasn't just working with wood. You were also kind of a mason. You did whatever you could to make a living, to provide. Jesus was tan. Probably spent a lot of time, since it's probably like kind of an oily tan. And you shook his hand and there were calluses. Have you ever met a guy that does sheetrock? I knew this guy back at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain in the day. His name was Tracy. Tracy was like the most mild kind of guy in the world, but he did sheetrock for a living. And they would have like men's arm wrestling competitions. And you'd have these like 20-year-old guys that are all jacked and, and ripped, like I got you. And they're, they're going through the competition. And then there's Tracy, this 50-year-old man, like ba-boom. I mean, just, just killing kids. I mean, just strong. You know, you, we'll look at this. But if you look at what Jesus endured physically, all, before he even gets crucified, a lesser man would have died. Most people didn't endure the scourging. Jesus endured the scourging after taking a beating beforehand and was at least able to get the cross halfway. He was strong. Jesus, he, there was, okay, there was nothing that brought attention to himself. The Bible tells us that. But Jesus did command respect from men. He was a man that other men looked at and said, yeah, I'll give up everything and follow you into battle. Because that's where they thought they were going. If Jesus is as we think of him, 130-pound Fabio, People, hey, come follow me. We're going to set up the kingdom. Uh-uh. That's a suicide mission. Jesus. I mean, he's strong. He, he, go, he starts flipping over tables, and he physically drives people out because they were misrepresenting his father. And he wouldn't have it. And they were taking advantage and abusing the system that he had created that he had instituted to represent what he was coming to do. He says, enough's enough. <laughs> My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. You know who was not allowed in the temple? These people. The blind and the lame were viewed as being unclean. That their blindness or their lameness was on account of God's judgment for sin. And as a result, they were prohibited from entering the temple, prohibited from offering sacrifice, prohibited. Their access to God was restricted. They were the outcasts. Jesus, I love this, his house, he drives out the religious people misrepresenting him. And he's like, hey, all you who are broken, come on in. A whole group gets pushed out and a whole group that weren't allowed to come in, come in. And I can see all the like, little Weasley religious people like, they're not supposed to be here. And Jesus is like, oh, this blind guy, he ain't blind no more. That gimp, with arms. Heals him. He ain't, he ain't getting no more. How beautiful picture is that of what Jesus had come to do? He came to rebuke the people that were misrepresenting him. 
to stand against them, to say enough's enough. And then he welcomed anyone that had been rejected and kept out because of religion that could never be good enough. He says, come on, I'll make you whole. Let me close with, let me allegorize a little bit. Today there is no temple. There is. There is a temple. Is it in Jerusalem? No, it's not. But there is a temple. In fact, there are multiple temples. There are actual dwelling places of the God of the universe on earth right now. It's not in Jerusalem, and it's not built by man. It's you. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that you are the temple of the living God. How so? A temple is just where God dwells. And if you've been filled, if you've given your life to Jesus, and that heart of stone has been replaced by his Holy Spirit that is now indwelling you, which is why you have a hard time doing the things you used to do, because like something changed, yeah, God is dwelling in you. You are the temple of the living God. And I just wonder, and, and I'm not going to go off on a, a thought here, but I am just going to say, when Jesus comes and he evaluates his temple, you, are there things that he should be driving out? Does he look at you and says, yeah, that's my house, it's a house of prayer. Or does he say, man, that's my, that's my house. But you've allowed it to become a den of thieves. You're allowing things to rob you of what I want. There is no physical temple in this context. But there is a temple and it's you. When Jesus comes in and he evaluates. So what do I do, Zach? Because, man... I got graffiti all over the place. Toilets overflowing. It's a, it's a dump. What do I do? Now you come back to the cross. And you say, Jesus, you drive it out. You're not telling me what I need to drive out of my life. I need to be submissive to you and what you want to drive out. <laughs> Jesus, I'm just an ass. I got to be in submission to you. So, Father, Lord, we thank you.